0: Welcome back to the Wealth Actually Podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at WealthActually.com. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes. It is neither investment, legal, nor tax advice and does not represent the opinions of the employers of the host or guest. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth
1: Actually Podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Behavioral finance is all the rage. BFI, as the not so cool kids in the financial world call it, is the next phase in guiding individuals, teams, boards, companies, and leaders to better decision making. There's plenty of material telling us where people get it wrong. Even the best brains get deceived by a litany of behavioral biases. They fall off the track of economic rationality. However, even with all of these labels, there's little guidance on how to identify and use this context. Until now. Peter Atwater argues in his new book, The Confidence Map, that there's a straightforward mental model. It can diagnose an individual's emotion and confidence, its directionality, and its relationship to group and social mood. Further, he argues that people and their advisors can use this information to pull decision makers out of the limitations of their own silos. People will be able to recognize what is occurring in their surroundings, mitigate risk, and maximize opportunity. We'll discuss Peter's findings, the mental model he's developed, and finally, the process of writing the book.
2: Welcome aboard, Peter. Thanks so much, Fraser. It's great to be here.
1: Well, I'm psyched for you because the launch of your book is coming out imminently. And first of all, I want to congratulate you on that because that's a big achievement. Having read the book, you were kind enough to send along a copy ahead of time. I think you're going to have a really big impact with what you talked about in it. So before we get into the book, let's go through a little bit about your background. For listeners here, I worked for Peter for a little while back at Wilmington Trust, which was a great experience because we had someone who was thoughtful and business-oriented and at the same time understood the needs and problems of being a fiduciary and that type of situation. But take us through a little bit about how you
2: got to where you are right now. Yeah. So I have two careers. I have a career that, to your point, includes time at Wilmington Trust. I started right out of college with JP Morgan, spent 13 years there starting, building, ultimately running their asset backed securities business, and then left there to go work for one of my clients, which was First USA that ultimately got bought by Bank One, had a variety of jobs there, treasurer, helped run the asset management business, and then ultimately ran the private client business. And if I think about that part of my career, It feels very traditional, very client-focused. And then when I was working for Wilmington Trust, it coincided with my 45th birthday. And my son proudly announced his math skills, I think he was eight or nine at the point, to remind me as I was blowing out the candles on my cake that I was halfway to 90. (laughs) And those words really stop you in your tracks. And I didn't quite know what it was that I wanted to do next, but I knew that what I was doing wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And my wife generously dealt with me during a period of time of indecision. I stopped working, not knowing what I was going to do next. Next turned out to be advising some money managers and hedge funds through the financial crisis in 2008 having been a bank treasurer, having worked in securitization, having dealt with the rating agencies and regulators, I had a pretty good sense for what was likely to unfold. But when the crisis bottomed, I didn't think it was over. I thought we'd moved risk from the private sector to the public sector, but I didn't think the risks had been eliminated. And so I was puzzled when the market started to move up and move up I mean, there was a clear V-shaped move in the markets that didn't quite make sense to me. And that began my journey down this rabbit hole to try to understand how do people think in the markets? Why do investors do what they do? And from that, I've seen a broader view of how we all make decisions and how our confidence ebbs and flows, and what that does to us. So that's how I got here. So we get to this point, I know you do a little bit of teaching as
1: well. And so we'll get into that as part of the journey through the book. You get to the point where you write this book, The Confidence Map, and take us through the central tenet of the book and the role of context and mood and emotion, confidence, et cetera, that takes place in people's decision makings and how that really unmoors them oftentimes against the economic perfection of rationality that we're told exists.
2: I think when it comes to confidence, we have this view of it that's similar to pornography. We know it when we see it, but we can't (laughs) explain it. And so that inability to explain what it was really befuddled me. I had difficulty in the classroom trying to explain it to my students. I felt like I was creating this big word cloud of abstraction. We talk about trust, we talk about hope, fear, all of these different aspects of confidence, but there was no clarity to what we really meant. And ultimately, I settled on two elements that I think are essential to feeling confident. One is that we feel we know what's coming. That there's predictability to our lives and to the world around us. And the other is a sense of control that we feel powerful in it, that we are prepared, that we know what we're going to do. We know what to do. We have skills, tools, the resources to be successful in the world that we imagine ahead. And so the term certainty and control became foundational to the way I look at things. And the reason that I call this the confidence map is that with those two words, I created a two-by-two two framework of boxes where certainty high and low, control high and low, suddenly I could start to see that there are patterns to our behaviors depending on the mix of certainty and control that we feel.
1: one of those things that it lends itself to, and we were talking beforehand about the nature of that matrix and how being able to put one's, in a sense, feelings on a map and that it's movable. This isn't established at birth at various points along the way. It can move and ebb and flow. And then therefore, if you have some understanding around that, that helps to inform the context in which you're making decisions. The question against that long backdrop there is you have this map of certainty and control, highs and lows with all of that. How does that lead into that? Confidence and vulnerability that ultimately I think is the feeling or the emotion that sometimes whipsaws people when they're thinking about things.
2: If you listen to the way we talk, we would say confidence comes in three sizes none, some, and too much. We either don't have confidence, we have some confidence, or we're overconfident. That's not entirely accurate. And so as I was looking at this environment where we have low certainty and control, what became clear was, well, that defines moments of vulnerability in our lives. And so you can start to think of confidences existing on a spectrum from feeling uncertain and powerless, a sense of being defeated at one end, and feeling invincible at the other, where we're absolutely certain what's coming, and we're absolutely sure in terms of what we're going to do to handle it. So, I think of our lives as moving around these feelings of confidence and vulnerability. And vulnerability is a really powerful motivator of the choices that we make. And I think we underappreciate, particularly today, the role that our feelings of vulnerability have in the choices that many people are making. So, in the context of the book, how should people,
1: when they're armed with this understanding, think about? Their own position on the confidence map when they're making decisions. It seems like you almost have to remove yourself from your body and see where you are in the context of not only your own brain, but in the mood and social milieu in which you're
2: making these decisions. Yeah. So I think of these four boxes almost like four very different countries Japan, the United States, Brazil, and India. These are very different places. We think differently. We talk differently. We process information. We make what we want in these boxes is distinct to where we are. And that becomes really useful because I can quickly say, I feel vulnerable and put a pin in that lower left hand box in what I call the stress center. And if I can pause for a second, After reading my book, you'll know that, okay, when I'm in the stress center, when I'm feeling vulnerable, the things that I'm going to say to myself and others aren't going to be especially kind. Our mean voice comes out. I also know that I'm likely to be much more emotional and impulsive, that I'm going to doubt my ability to regain confidence. I'm likely to see more uncertainty and feel more powerless. Then reality suggests I should. If you think about it on an airplane with turbulence hits, we immediately feel like the plane's going to crash. Well, the odds of a plane crashing are incredibly remote. But in that moment, we don't think rationally about that. And so, to the extent that we can realize how our stories, our preferences, our actions, the way we think are a function of where we are then you have some objective basis to say, whoa, 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 whoa. Rather than fleeing, for example, if you're an investor, when the markets are panicking, now, if you can look at panic and say, oh, everybody's moving rapidly into the lower left-hand corner, then you can step back and say, rather than selling out, maybe I should be preparing to buy, that this is an objective way to know where we and others are.
1: This leads to something that I found particularly compelling in the book, which was the role of leaders in diagnosing what's happening on the outside and then happening in the broader society, maybe within specific groups within society and how that impacts the strategic decisions that are made within a company context or something similar. Politics would be a great example of that, too. Let's dive into this a little bit. When you're advising people around this, especially people in leadership, either at companies or et cetera, how do you help them define the group versus the individual? And how do you sort of cut across placing groups or societies in that confidence map versus the individual?
2: I think of there being three levels of confidence that we're all involved in every day. One is societal confidence. And there, whether you're dealing with Gallup or the Conference Board or Michigan, they're really good at giving us a sense of how we America woke up in the morning. And I always think of that as a good way to start because that's going to frame the macro environment of decision-making. And then you can start to break into subsets. So I can look at a technology company today versus how a inner city group might feel. Because we're all part of sub-environments that have a sense of abundance or scarcity to them. And that abundance or scarcity has a big impact on what we as a small group might be doing. That scarcity could relate to safety or money or control and power. There are characteristics of the things that matter to us. And then there's the situational environment where you have different triggering events. Before we got on this call, you talked about an experience in trying to deal with something and travel. Your flight was screwed up and what do I do? So you can think about these as being either amplifying or dampening our response. If we step back and just this week, look at what's happening in France. So you have. Consumer confidence, they're very low to begin with. You have subsets of the population that is very, very low, where they feel less than there's a sense of scarcity. And then you throw on a triggering spark. Not surprisingly, that's an environment where you're going to have this spontaneous social outrage. We saw the same thing in the US with the Black Lives Matter movement. You had the backdrop of COVID and the powerlessness people felt. You have a community that already feels disadvantaged, and then you have the spark with the shooting of George Floyd. So these are things that, whether you're a policymaker or a corporate leader, you need to be attuned to because that's going to have a big impact not only on what others are doing, but likely your response to what others are doing.
1: One of the really good examples that you talk about in the book is the Tylenol case, where you had a crisis, you had poisoning of Tylenol from a pure business setting, you have potentially the absolute destruction of a brand. And maybe take us through that example a little bit. And I would say there are plenty of lessons learned from the Tylenol example that maybe Bud Light could learn from in dealing with maybe a footfall on one hand, but then trying to navigate what's going forward. Give us some context on that Tylenol example so that listeners who are under the age of 40 <laughs> have some
2: idea of what's going on there sure so you had seven capsules of tylenol containers of tylenol that had been somehow ended up with i think it was cyanide in them and so on the surface you would say this is a very small isolated event and as a choice the folks at johnson and johnson which own the tylenol brand could have just dealt with this as a problem, I think, in Chicago. They didn't. The leadership there, Jim Burke, they pulled every container of Tylenol on the shelves across the country. They eliminated the potential threat to all consumers. And this to me speaks to the difference between how they dealt with the problem versus how most corporations deal with the problem. For most corporations, the response is fix the damn problem now. So they tend to be very specific and concrete in what's broken. They try to minimize it and eliminate it as quickly as they can. Cap the well, fix the plane, do something that is very, very specific, concrete and be done with it. That's great but it's woefully insufficient. It fails to address the uncertainty and powerlessness that have arisen from the problem. To me, the difference between a problem and a crisis is the feelings. What makes something a crisis is how we feel about what's happened. So there, you have to think about threat of elimination, not just problem solving. And here, thinking about what's the vulnerability that's arisen from this, and how do I make people feel more certain and more in control of the situation? And there, I think the folks at J and J were brilliant. If I eliminate the threat entirely, then everybody feels better. I've put a floor on how low confidence can fall. And whether you look at the company's stock price or the resurgence in the brand, they were treated as heroes and we don't have a lot of heroic crisis management today. We have a lot of crisis minimizing strategies. Don't talk to the press. Limit the information. Minimize the problem. And if you look, for example, at Boeing's handling of the 737, the MAX series jet crashes, they thought they had a plane problem. What the data, the news headlines, the stories, the policymaker response, the passenger and airline carrier response all suggest is they had a vulnerability issue. People didn't feel safe. And so until you address that safety concern, if you're an airline, you don't have an airline. I mean, ValueJet learned that firsthand. So leaders need to rethink what's the real problem? As I tell doctors, the difference between curing a patient and healing a patient. Is addressing the confidence of the individual.
1: A really important example there. Just to muse a little bit on the Bud Light component, where I'm not sure you don't have a safety problem exactly, but you do have a faith in the brand problem that's developed over time because of, let's call it a branding misstep, which I think we can call it since they've lost market leadership and 30% of their sales at least, et cetera. How would you think about that in terms of telling somebody what they should do going forward?
2: In a case like that, it's, they've broken the promise. And I think that it's unclear that the folks in the marketing area at Budweiser really had a good sense of what the promise was. What was the certainty and the sense of power and control that you were giving users, giving the consumer? What were you guaranteeing that they would have? Because I think if you step back and look at their missteps, they took away a sense of certainty of what the brand stood for. They took away a sense of control to the consumer. And you have to be really careful with both of those. One of the reasons that I like certainty and control so much is they're actionable. But it also means they're actionable in a destructive way. You can take them away. You're watching companies more broadly deal with this problem with the employees that they said could work from home. Now they're taking that control away from individuals. And as as they're seeing, we're not happy when somebody takes away our sense of certainty and control. You're inherently making me feel more vulnerable. So let's pull it
1: back a little bit to the individual and someone dealing with their own personal wealth and finance and those types of concepts. The concept of behavioral finance where emotions and irrationality govern a lot of decision making around wealth. It's certainly much more popular now, and it's a valuable tool in helping people make good decisions going forward. How does this confidence map help either advisors inform clients on how to make good decisions going forward? How would you think about that in terms of trying to get people to understand the context in which they're charting their path going forward, either
2: to retirement or beyond? There are two aspects. One is that one is tactical. All of our financial decisions are made in the upper left-hand box of the map, which I call the lunch pad, environments where we have control but no certainty. We forget that second piece when we're borrowing money, lending money, investing. We make choices that are outcome-imagined driven. So I think about what I'm expecting ahead, and then I make my financial decision today based on that. And that's a terrible approach because we tend to overinvest when we're certain that it's going to be good times ahead, and we underinvest and sell out when it's the opposite. So we need to be very careful tactically when we're making financial decisions to appreciate that our imagination of the future is entirely a function of how we feel. The future is inherently uncertain always has been, is, and always will be. So the clearer you can imagine that future, good and bad, the more you're revealing your own feelings more than you are what's likely to be ahead. So we need to be really careful in distinguishing between how do I feel in the future I imagine than the real risk of what I'm doing. The second piece is more strategic and particularly when you're dealing with individuals with wealth, we need to remember that wealth means more than just an abundance of money and a sense of permanence. And so there are aspects to it that tie into the certainty and control that a wealthy individual feels. And in many cases, those can be incredibly seductive. And we're very inclined, the wealthier we are, to not pay attention. Overconfidence creates blindness. And I don't think it's any coincidence that many of the investors in a company like Theranos were overconfident. They were wealthy. They easily were seduced by the promise of this futuristic technology. The wealthy need to remember. That all that wealth is also making you less prone to scrutinize what you're doing, to make quicker decisions than you might otherwise. And I think you should be careful as you gain wealth, to remain grounded in the potential for good and bad, that you're vulnerable in a funny way, in a way that you don't appreciate.
1: It's one of those things I certainly, in my practice and advising people, I see that all the time where some people equate success in one milieu into acumen in another, among many other biases that are out there. But I think it's interesting. What I found pretty cool about your book is that being able to show graphically where people fit in on certain components, that you're able to elevate past the ticking off of dots, basically saying, oh, you know, you're thinking this and doing that and attaching labels to things that don't really mean anything. That graphic approach and where one's mindset is and helping them think about for themselves where they are, I think that can be a powerful
2: tool. Hugely powerful. And it's quick. It doesn't take much to identify where am I on the quadrant today. I do a lot of mapping exercises and it's striking how quickly we can all put a pin in a particular box. What I try to do in the book is to say none of these boxes is inherently all good or all bad. There are attributes of them that are beneficial, and there are attributes of them that are damaging. And so being aware of them enables you to make better decisions no matter where you are. And I try to give some suggestions of things to do to make better decisions in all of the four
1: boxes. So for people who advise other people, it doesn't have to be finance, can be lawyers, can be consultants, et cetera. What equipment, and I put that in bolded air quotes, should they have in being able to use some of the concepts that you're talking about? I would say that just reading the book and going forth blindly might be a little reckless. What else should they be thinking about in terms of having a good grounding in helping people understand themselves where they are and then where they fit in with the broader decision-making context?
2: One of the first things i ask advisors and corporate leaders to begin with is, what box are you in, in what you do for a living? Because many individuals don't appreciate that businesses inherently operate in different boxes. If I'm an emergency room doctor, my day is spent in the stress center with individuals who are there because largely they feel uncertain and powerless in their health. But if I'm a company like Home Depot or Lowe's, I operate in an environment of the launch pad. People come to me because they want control of the situation and they're going to solve the problem themselves. The world of do it yourself, including in the investment world, is in that launch pad. The advisor space, though, is an environment of what I call the passenger seat, where others have certainty, but they don't have control it's law firms, it's luxury dining, it's the service industry. But a lot of advisors get themselves really cross-legged because their clients, many of their clients want to do it themselves. And so they end up in this tense environment where the client wants to be in the launch pad and they want the client in the passenger seat. And there's this struggle for who's got the steering wheel. And I think companies and individuals in the advisory space need to be really clear with their clients that I don't do that. We don't offer that. And others do, and by all means, have funds that you invest on your own. But a driver's ed car solution is going to lead to a terrible outcome. I'm hardwired
1: to worry, and these powerful tools in the hands of the charlatans on one end and then the pernicious on the other hand... No scare me a little bit, because I could see someone being able to diagnose people in points of vulnerability to then deploy something that they want to sell to them. How do you respond to that? Is that something that part of the reason to read the book is to gain self-awareness, but then also to be able to deal with the outside world?
2: Sadly, Fraser, predators, cult leaders, authoritarian figures, there's a cadre of people who instinctively know they can smell vulnerability. What they provide is promises of control and certainty ahead. Follow me, that I'm going to take you through the passenger seat back to the comfort zone. And we see that in so many aspects of society today, whether it's religious and sports figures who are exposed for the horrible things they're doing, cult leaders, some political figures. And I don't think my book gives them a guide. I think they're already pre-wired to do that. What I hope is it enables those who are feeling vulnerable to be much more aware of the potential that they have to be victimized. The predator never wants to empower the victim. Their worst nightmare is that you ultimately regain control. And whether you look at a character like Harvey Weinstein, what they want to do is to put people into an environment of certainty and powerlessness as long as they possibly can. And what those who are entrapped by that begin to realize is they're going to be there forever unless they take control. And that's a really hard thing for many individuals because they're forced to swap an environment of. Powerlessness and certainty for an environment of control, but intense uncertainty. So it's a real reversal in environment. And I try in the book to talk about so, what do you do to get out of that passenger seat? Because it exists in work, it exists in relationships, it exists today for many people in multiple parts of their lives. Well, one of the things that I really just
1: thought of this now was in terms of diagnosing startup founders and entrepreneurs and people who are comfortable in the total control, total uncertainty component of a business startup, your book to me would seem to be an interesting roadmap into helping people diagnose whom to bet on in terms of being able to operate in that environment. Whereas people who are more comfortable in a corporate heavy certainty environment might be a way to really figure out who's best
2: suited for those types of roles. Yeah. And I think that if you're going to go work for a startup, you have to recognize the chances are you're going to work for somebody who is a dominant entrepreneur. So you're going to be on a roller coaster. You're going to be a passenger seat on wherever that individual is driving the organization. The challenge for those leaders is that ultimately to succeed, they must empower others. So many businesses fail. Because control is never spread out to others, that the founding dominant figure leaves this vacuum of followership, none of whom is capable of taking the reins. I talk about Spanx and what Sarah Blakely did, because I think what distinguishes her is a self-awareness that said, okay, I'm a founder, I'm a dominant entrepreneur, but for Spanx to ultimately become this corporation, this brand that I think it has the potential to be, I need to empower others who are all about mentoring and growing the leadership depth of the organization. If I look at a company like Disney and even Starbucks, you have these dominant figures and Bob Iger and and Howard Schultz that have resulted in this boomerang leadership CEO model where they leave and are forced to come back. That, to me, is a really telling sign on the powerlessness and the lack of leadership development that they fostered within the organization. If nobody is capable of taking the reins, you have a succession problem that is more glaring than you realize. It's a formative lesson for
1: family businesses and businesses that are private that are much smaller and people who are going through that succession discussion. I think it's a useful mapping exercise to see not only where the dominant personality is in terms of the leadership of the business, but also the different, whether it's family members or management, et cetera, where they fit in. Because a lot of the succession issues that we see both on TV to name check that show and in real life Those struggles really go from a lack of self-awareness of where people fit in on that.
2: And you have dominant figures, authoritarian leaders, patriarchs. I always think of when people use the term patriarch, or they use the term cult leader, what is clear to me is that when that individual leaves the spotlight, there is going to be a period of chaos because there is no one who has been prepared for that succession role. And so organizations need to listen to the words they use and how they talk about themselves, whether as a family or as a small business or even as a full corporation. Because if you have a long-term dominant authoritarian leader you have an incredibly fragile environment that you don't realize. I write about the fall of Afghanistan. If you have a vacuum that can be created, you're going to have an environment of chaos. And there are a number of major corporations today that I think are ripe for that, that they don't truly appreciate that dynamic. Well, we will not force you to disclose who they
1: are so that you could consult them when they listen to this and say, Oh gosh, I think we have a problem. But so speaking of chaos and roller coasters, let's take a couple minutes to talk about your book writing process because it's one thing to have a lot of these things and these ideas in between the ears. And then it's another to have that congeal in a useful form. Maybe go through the decision to say, okay, I've got a book here and then what you did to make that dream become reality.
2: So I've been teaching and consulting on this topic for more than a decade. And as I've said to so many, I felt like I had a box of Christmas ornaments without a tree. I had mm-hmm. lots of ideas and different things that I wanted to talk about, but I didn't have a framework to do it. And it was very frustrating. So much so that it was actually my wife who said, I've had enough of you. Wandering in the desert. You need a coach. And so she actually teamed me up with a woman who helped me as a writing coach. And it wasn't to write better, although I think she certainly improved my storytelling and what I was doing. But she really forced me to think about how would I begin to organize a book? And from that, we came up with an outline. And she helped me find my editor, Noah Schwartzberg at Portfolio, who was really open to the idea. He said, just keep writing. Once we have things on paper, we can reorganize and come up with a plot line for this book. And to look at the book today, it feels very obvious that, of course, it's organized the way it is. But I can tell you that there are Three, if not four, variations of the book that look nothing like it in terms of the way it's laid out. But the more I wrote, and the more Noah kept asking, So, what do I do with this? One of the things that I'm proudest of is that Noah forced me to take this from theory and concept to usable, useful advice to somebody. As he and I spent a lot of time talking, The world of behavioral finance is filled with lots of concepts, but not a lot of, so what do I do? One of the things I'm proudest of is the feedback from folks that this now gives people actionable advice.
1: Well, mission accomplished. I found it to be not only a rewarding read, but very useful. And we were talking before, I said, it's so useful, in fact, that I need a cheat sheet because (laughs) you can't go through and flip through pages when you're doing stuff and I love having the one page laminate to be able to use these concepts in my own world. I'm thrilled Peter to have you on. Thank you for taking the time here. How do we get a hold of the book and how do we stay in touch with you and your
2: further writings and thoughts? So the confidence map is available for pre-order now from the major booksellers Amazon and Barnes and & Noble but also through your independent bookstore. They have access to it and folks can follow me on Twitter, where I'm at Peter underscore Atwater. I also write frequently for my blog on LinkedIn, and I have a website, peteratwater.com. So there's lots of ways they can find me. And at the moment, most of them are filled with a fair amount of shameless promotion. So I can assure them that I am not who I normally as I am portraying myself during this book launch process. That is part of the job description, whether you want it or not. You got to get out
1: there. Again, congratulations. I think the book is terrific. And I look forward to catching up with you. I think this would be an interesting segment if we start thinking about various incidents that come across in a corporate sense and maybe hearing your thoughts on what they did wrong and maybe some things that they could do to fix. But Peter, thank you so much for being on.
2: Thanks so much, Fraser. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to WealthActually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Fraser Rice is an employee of Next Capital Management, LLC. This podcast is not investment, legal, or tax advice, nor does it reflect the opinions of next capital management. Any opinions represented in the show are Fraser's individually and not an endorsement of the guests.